amen and amen. You may be seated as I get to prepare my... Hello! There I am. Yes, good morning. How are you all doing? You do realize it's a new year, right? We're on the same page. You all know where you're at. The house of the Lord, no place I'd rather be than in the house of the Lord. Look at us getting that window open. Tape them shut and we still get them open. That's the perfect... You know, these stained glass windows are an amazing thing, and we are really blessed to have them. But I got a little bit of a repair to fix that window right there. And any of you who know a stained glass person who loves to work in stained glass, please send them our way. Because it turns out that stained glass windows are no longer something that everyone does and are reasonably priced. They are artisan work, artisan. And the two or three people that came out to gave me estimates, um, it will take a couple of cars to be sold to fix a few windows in this building. But because those windows have been opened and closed so much, unfortunately, they're not as stable as they used to be. And uh, I don't know about you, but when we remodeled the church two years ago, we weren't thinking we were going to have to fix all these windows, but we may have to do that. So be praying about that. Maybe if you know someone, someone today said, hey, my friend messes around with stained glass. Send that friend that messes around with stained glass to me right now, because I need that friend to go over there and mess around with that thing, because I would love to preserve what we have here, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I'm one of those people that's a little bit nostalgic. I come here and I look around and I think, uh, matter of fact, Kevin brought his uh, 57 Chevy that's out in the parking lot this morning. And all of a sudden, I was thinking about, that's about when the church was built, like in the 50s, right? And across the street, 48. If you guys in the, that were here yesterday for Gene's service, the original sanctuary is 1948. And so we really have a little bit of a piece of American history in our neighborhood here and a real blessing. And so I actually look forward to coming on Sunday because I actually love the building as much as I love you guys. But uh, a lot of love in the building. Yesterday, we got a chance to say goodbye to Gene. And Michelle and, his, and the family was here. And for some, you know, they were here in Monterey on vacation. And it was totally unex, uh, unexpected. Yet the turnout for Gene's uh, service yesterday was phenomenal. And the amount of people that came up and shared the influence that Gene had in his life. Um, it was just a good reminder for me. And something uh, Eric mentioned yesterday, I thought was really good. And he said, no point during the service did we ever talk about what Gene did for a living. Not once. Not one point of, and it was a two and a half hour, three hour service. There was a lot of amazing stories, but not once did anyone said, you know, having a keysmith or a locksmith in my life was really useful. Not once. Having a, everyone mentioned that he helped out and he did, but not once, you know, and no one talked about how much he owned or what he was leaving behind. None of those things were talked about. All we talked about were the relationships that he had and how deeply he loved. And I thought that was a really good encouragement for me. So if you weren't here, uh, then you can follow up with Michelle. They're heading home, hopefully today, in a caravan. But there's some inclement weather heading back to Idaho. So they are a little bit nervous because she's dragging her daughter and her son. And they're all four-car caravanning. So please continue to keep them in prayer. Well, we are in Chapter 2 of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah this week has uh, got two little sections in there. So the first 10 verses are before the king, which is what I'm going to be sharing with you this morning. And then the second half of chapter 2, um, 11 through 17, is about the first time that Nehemiah takes a walk around the walls and gets a chance to see that. So I want to encourage you. I think most of the small groups are coming back in. Um, if you haven't noticed, is the new threefold in the, in the... Okay, we do have a new threefold of where the small groups are, and I think most of them are coming back in. So I want to encourage the small groups. And if you're not part of a small group, this is a good pitch for you. Small groups, you guys go after that second part of the passage today where Nehemiah gets to walk around the walls. You guys can read that and kind of talk about that with your groups. 
And then hopefully you guys can realize something, that whatever happens on Sunday is only part of the experience of Lighthouse Community Church. We definitely want to encourage you, even those of you who are watching online, get involved with a small group, get involved with the life group, and grow with a community of people. Matter of fact, at least two conversations happened yesterday with Gene from people that had still not been at church for about two years due to COVID and other situations. And they experienced yesterday just being back in the church, something that I think is so important. It's life-giving. And I want to encourage you guys, get involved with that, and then you guys can discuss that second half. And we'll focus today on Nehemiah's Before the King. And if you weren't here last week, then I want to run through just the whole part of Nehemiah 1. The idea that Nehemiah is a standalone book, right? It's not a standalone book. It's a continuing story of going back to Jerusalem and rebuilding. And it was actually begun in Ezra, the book prior to that. And we found out that Ezra, in fact, is the scribe who probably wrote both books. And he gives an account of Zerubbabel going back and trying to rebuild. Zerubbabel's a contractor, so he gets to rebuild the temple and the altar. But when he tries to call the Lord down to it, it does not work out so well for him. And he ends up leaving it undone. And then he dispatches the next guy, Ezra, the priest. And Ezra realized, I'm not a builder. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, a man of God. So I'm going to try to teach the people to go back to the Torah, go back to living the laws. And so he spends some time with the people and tries to instill in them some values that will get them focused again on what the temple is all about. And he also runs into adversity, and he kind of leaves with the situation undone. Then sometime later, Nehemiah gets the torch passed to him. And at this time, Nehemiah has a job, an incredible job, if you think about luck. Nehemiah's job is the cupbearer to the king. Now, we don't really have any cupbearers today, but back then they actually had cupbearers to the king. And I found a word that was kind of interesting this week, a sommelier. It's uh, someone who tastes wine and knows wine and whatever it is. Nehemiah kind of had that job. That's what he was. He was the sommelier to the king. The difference was he wasn't testing it for flavor and quality. He was testing it for poison. And he had to test the king's wine every meal. And I started to think about that. It's like, it's, it's interesting. Uh, one of the things that I found out is I kind of pre-read the rest of the book all the way through 13 chapters. 11 of the 13 chapters of Nehemiah involve dedication to prayer. The idea that he continually falls back to prayer. And then I started thinking about that. Well, relative to his job, if you had to eat the king's food and drink the king's wine before every meal, that means three times a day he had to do something. He had to pray, Lord, this meal could kill me. This meal could kill our king. Would you protect me? I'm, I started walking through in the office this week, and I was starting to think about what it would have been like and how intense his prayer life would have been. Because all day, every day, as each meal came up, it was a chance for him to be killed doing his job. And yet, by being able to do that job and being able to do that job well, at some point in this opportunity, when he's before the king, it's 12 years of showing breakfast, lunch, and dinner faithfulness to the king and i think you're going to see what happens the effect of that is when he gets this opportunity to say lord either take this call from me or work this call out he has peace with it because i don't think he probably woke up one morning and said i'm going to be a cupbearer to the king i think he came to the realization that just as god had gave him that job and gave him the opportunity to have position and power and authority and god had protected him the whole way that god was going to do the same for him as he sent him back to jerusalem to build Planning and, and praying is an important part of Nehemiah, but I think I discovered a couple of things this week. I think I realized something in waiting for the call. Nehemiah has about four months to wait for the call. He discovers three principles, and I'm going to share with you guys today the three principles I think that we can discover while we're waiting for the call. If chapter one was about the call, then chapter two is opportunity before the king is what he had to do to prepare himself 
to answer that call. So as Nehemiah prayed, let me get ready to pray this morning, and I pray that God would clear our hearts and clear our minds. As I look around this morning, I realize that some of you are going through some pretty heavy stuff. Matter of fact, as I look around this morning, I realize that just in health alone, uh, with all the stuff that I know going on with health, I'm just so blessed and encouraged that you're here today and you made the effort to be here. I know there's lots of things you can be doing, a lot of other places you could be, but I want to encourage you. There's no place you should ever want to be other than in the house of the Lord. May the word of God be an encouragement to you this morning. Father God, first and foremost, as I get ready to look at this book, I want to just, I want to lift up the name above all names. Father, I want to start it all with an attitude of gratitude and say thank you, Jesus, for your work on the cross and what that actually means to every single person in here today who calls you Lord and Savior. Father, for the opportunity to see someone pass like Gene yesterday and to pass well and to, to give every day and live every moment out in such a way that I think at some point somebody said he ran away from the Lord for 38 years, but one day you tapped him on the shoulder and said, enough is enough. I'm waiting for you, and this is the last call. And Gene said, I'll take it. And he ran just as hard to you, Father, as he did away from you. And may we all have that same kind of attitude this morning that when we realize the great and high call in our lives to, to say, Jesus, come into my life, forgive me of my sins, be my Lord and Savior, there is a work that has been set aside for us. And who are we to ask, are you sure you want to send me? On behalf of stuttering Moses and everyone else in the Bible who said to you, Lord, are you sure you want to send me? May you encourage us this morning as we boldly go before the King. Father, we do it all and say it all in your son's precious and holy name. Amen. I didn't know why that's emotional. But I was thinking about that, right? Moses, stuttering Moses, standing before the burning bush, and God's calling him down. Because it's about call. I mean, it's been overwhelming for me, this thing about call. And yet he said, the bush is burning and it's not being consumed. And then at some point in his mind, he's like, but my brother, he's such a good speaker. You know, Aaron, Lord, you should know him, right? Why are you calling me to do this great thing? Because when the Lord has called you to do it, guys, there's no place that you should rather be than trusting that God's going to walk you through it. So for 12 years, he's been drinking. For 12 years, he's been eating. And for 12 years, the results of this is he's now become not just an employee to the king, but a trusted advisor. Think about that. If you're the king, I'm sure you have people that you want to surround yourself with. Yet, in fact, the one guy who's tasting your food and helping you out every day by putting his life on the line every single time becomes a trusted advisor to the king. And Nehemiah realizes something. I didn't have anything to do with that. So that principle alone, if I didn't have anything to do with that, yet God has made it so. Now God's calling me on behalf of hearing my brother's story that my dad's tombs and my father's tombs before him, that the land that I'm from, I'm, not, I'm in captivity in Babylon, but the land that I'm from, my homeland, Jerusalem, is in disarray, is not sitting well with me. So Father, I'm trusting you that if you're commissioning me to go, then even though it makes no sense, I will trust you with it. So let's read the passage. And then I'm going to go back old school and kind of digest each passage uh, exegetically. We'll run through it, and we'll see what Nehemiah learns as he stands before the king. This is Nehemiah 2, 1 through 10, and now we'll be reading from NASB. And it came about in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that the wine was before him, and I picked up the wine, and I gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, why is your face sad, though you are not ill? There's nothing but sadness of heart. And then I was much afraid. And I said to the king, may the king live forever. But why shouldn't my face be sad when the city, the site of my father's tombs, is desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? And the king said to me, what would you request? So Nehemiah prayed to the God of heaven. And then I said to the king, 
If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, I request that you send me to Judah, the city of my father's tombs, that I might rebuild it. And the king said to me with the queen sitting beside him, And how long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me from the governors of the province beyond the river, so that they will allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me the timber to make beams, beams for the gates, for the citadel, which is by the temple, by the wall of the city, and for the house which I will go. And the king granted them to me, because the good hand of my God was upon me. And then I, then I came to the governors of the providence beyond the Euphrates River, and gave the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers and an army of horsemen. And when Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Amorite, the official, heard about it, they were very displeasing. It was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. Now why would it be displeasing if he had shown up to do all these different things? We're going to get to that, but let's go right back to the beginning and digest this first thing. When it says it's the month of Nisan, how many of you are Hebrews uh, calendar scholars? You know, you guys are using that today, so it's the month of Nisan. Okay, back to chapter 1. Remember when we talked about in chapter 1, he said it was the month of Chislev, right? Once again, we're not using it. Dylan, have you used Chislev this week? No, not in any conversations? Good. Chislev turns out to be November, December, okay? So in January, in November, December, in chapter 1, his brother comes to speak before the king. The king allows him the presence to speak to his brother, and his brother informs him, hey, you're not going to believe it, but back home where dad's buried and dad's buried and grandpa's buried, it's in complete disarray. Matter of fact, it's desolate, and our father's tombs are exposed, and Jerusalem isn't even a city anymore. So in November, when he, November December, when he hears that call, he's then presented with it. He begins to pray right away, right away and he begins to do what? Fast and mourn. So a couple of different things that we're going to get from that. He prays, he fasts, and he mourns. Now, when it comes to this chapter 2, and I just read Nisan, you might think, oh, it was like an hour later, and now he's, moving, he's standing before the king. It's not. It's now March, April. Okay? So he's had four months of preparation to get ready to speak to the king. Now, why does he need four months to prep to talk to the king? Because he's going to be stopping the king from his duties and stopping the king from his day and asking of the king something. And he's, he knows that the, one of the ways they can do it is to present himself sad. Remember in the first passage it said, now I had not been sad in his presence. That I, the idea there is by being sad in the king's presence, you risked something. What you risked was your life. Because your job was not to be sad in front of the king. Your job was to you know, boldly risk your life for the king. But in order for him to do that, he was going to get the king's attention. He wanted to be ready because the king knew him and he knew the king. That when he saw his face and when he saw his countenance, he would be prepared to follow through with this call that God is to ask for what he needed. And I think that's so important because one of the things I can think about in four months, if God's put something on your heart and you begin the process of praying, God, you really want me to do this thing? Um, whatever monumental thing it is, there's going to be times where you hit little walls along the way, right? And as you hit those walls and you think, well, I'm praying and nothing's happening, I'm praying and nothing's happening, you might just pass over that he mourned and fasted as well. Now, I don't know about you, but a, a discipline that I would love to get back to in the rhythm of life is fasting. You know, taking the time once a month to just set aside something from my life. Now, when I say fasting, most of us think food. 
And by the way, it's never water. It's, it's always something that you're used to using. Matter of fact, I used to teach my students years ago, they could fast from TV. They could phone fast. They could Instagram fast. They, fasting is just something that you're used to using every single day as a component of kind of feeding your soul. Obviously, food is a good need because when we're hungry, our body usually tells us pretty loudly. Some of us more loudly than others, right? I'm really hungry. Matter of fact, I ate two donut slices this morning, so good thing I wasn't fasting today. But what I think fasting and morning tell us is if you're praying and you're kind of sticking and you're kind of hitting a wall, maybe it's to move somewhere or to invest in something or pay the money to send your kids to a beautiful school, like a little lighthouse preschool, whatever, and you keep hitting a wall, I want to encourage you something. Don't skip past the morning fasting. A fast might be something where you and your husband and wife come together and say, hey, look, we're not going to drink something this week. We're not going to do something this week. We're going to take a whole day or a week or a month off from something we're doing. Because every time that need comes up, you have to tell yourself no. And instead, focus on the call that's been placed. Does that make sense? So what he's doing through that whole time, he's prepping, right? He's like, what do I need to do? Oh, my gosh. I'm a sommelier. I'm basically a food critic, right? And the food critic is either I die or I don't die, and that's how you know the food is good. How am I going to go rebuild? There's nowhere in the account of Nehemiah do you ever hear God say, and I gave Nehemiah the skill of contracting. I made him a general contractor with all the skills and abilities needed. He's not just going back to rebuild something. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, which I haven't had the privilege of, but some of you have had multiple trips, please go and see the walls because it's two and a half miles around. Okay, that's like almost to the ocean. Two and a half miles around. It's 40 foot tall, which probably getting pretty close with this inside wall, probably in that same dimension. And it's eight foot thick. Eight foot thick. So when he's asking about wood to build, when I get to that point about wood to build, he's not saying, hey, can I have like four pieces of lumber and like two gate hinges? Just the gates alone, there's 12 gates imagine the gate is where commerce is coming through the gates so what he's asking about and what he's trying to figure out that he's going to do he has to reframe those walls so that they can put the rock and rubble in them to once again get them to flatten out so then he can then build them up it's a monumental ask so the first thing that i want to share with you when you're waiting on the lord number point number one is wait diligently wait diligently you don't want to wait on the lord if the lord has called you to do something you don't want to wait passively don't just say well i'm praying about it sometimes people just use i'm i'm praying about it as a terrible excuse to not be they're complacent is really what it comes down to has the lord called you to do something yes are you doing it no why i'm waiting on him to kind of show me how to do it no nehemiah is still cup bearing every day he's still doing his job every day but he knows that burden is going to come at some point in time and when the king sees it says wait a minute i've been with you for 12 years that's not the face of sickness so for you to be like this in front of me is, is problematic so what is the problem tell me what the problem is he better be ready to go right your ducks better be in a row your eyes better be dot and your t's better be crossed because the king's asking you something and if you don't have an answer this could be problematic so he waited diligently. He started praying, he started fasting, and then he started mourning. Now, once again, mourning. Uh, if you were here at the funeral yesterday, I heard Eric say, Americans are terrible at this. Let me just say, I, have any of you ever truly mourned something? I mean, like, like to the point, like, there's times in my life right now where I think about something, and I, you guys know me pretty well. I'm definitely an emotional pastor. I'm definitely someone who's kind of on the razor's edge about emotions. And if certain things hit me at certain times, boom, I mean, it's just like, 
I can just feel my whole, and I have to fight it, right? Otherwise, you give into it, and then you're just going to be like a blabbering brook. And, but this is the kind of morning where you just, you just sit down, and you just think about it, and, you know, they, they would rent their clothes. They would tear their clothes. They would, you know, cover themselves in ash, and they would just take the time to supplicate and to say, and grieve the loss of something, Right? To be in that kind of position, you really, the Bible says the spirit understands when you're, you know, moaning and groaning, you're not really speaking. I think that's when one of those points, when you're, when you're really crying out to the Lord and really just, you're not speaking words anymore. You're just saying, God, I'm in serious need here. Speak to me. Nehemiah had developed something. I'm not just waiting. I'm waiting diligently and I'm mourning and I'm fasting and I'm doing whatever it is because I need an answer. Do you seriously want me to go and try to rebuild two and a half miles of wall when the only skill I have is here, you're, you're alive. You can drink this. Yes, this is good. You can eat this. And for that, for the, I mean, we all eat and drink. And for that little job that you have allowed me to be, I get to stand in the presence of the king and be an advisor? No, I'm going to trust God that you have something for me. And then the second thing I think you can see from that too is that he prays with urgency. Every time, every time in this scenario, he does this, the king asks this, and I think it's like verse 4, the king says, what would you want? Now, he's had four months to think about it by the time verse 4 says, and the king says, what do you want? And what does he do? He prayed again. You, you don't think he'd already been praying the whole time? I think he's probably praying the whole time. I mean, praying is he's really invested himself into praying without ceasing. Now, this is a concept in the Bible that I think flabbergasts people. Most people pray before they eat. Most people are comfortable in praying before they sleep because that's sensible. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Okay? The Bible says pray without ceasing. How do you pray without ceasing? Because all day long you're thinking about what God is doing. All day long as you're walking around. Just the fact that you can walk upright. Just the fact that your feet move. Wherever you're going, the fact that you have clothes and time and the ability to go. If you really start to supplicate and think about what God's doing, you can develop this kind of mindset of praying without ceasing. And then on top of that, pray with urgency. Lord, I don't know how long this is going to take. I don't know if I can really do this. Do you seriously want me to do this? Because you better gather the resources. He was forced to realize something. I'm going to need resources. So when he gets to the point about asking Asaph, when we get to the point where he gets asked Asaph for wood, the final thing is this. His, he asks big. He, he goes big, guys. This is not, hey, look, for 12 years I've risked my life for you, and I know that you appreciate that, so would you let me go home and just put a fence around the tombs where my father lives, where my fathers are from, my forefathers? Would you let me go home and maybe restore a portion of the wall and maybe a gate? Because that would have been a pretty good undertaking as well, right? Two and a half miles, maybe I just, let me build a quarter of it. Nope, I'm going to rebuild the whole thing and all the gates. Have any of you ever built a gate before? It's a pretty simple thing. But if you've never built one before, it's, it can be really complex, right? All of a sudden, you're like, it seems like it should do that. But if you build a gate with someone who's built a gate before, imagine building a gate big enough. I mean, if you've been there, you've seen how. Imagine building a 12-foot gate. I mean, these, these are some monumental task he's asking. And the amount of lumber and everything that he needs, he's like, Lord, I, I'm going. If I'm going, I'm going big. And if you want me to go do this, then you better supply Man, I don't know about you, but this whole week was such an encouragement to me to think about that. If God's asking you to do something ridiculous, like move to Costa Rica, sell your house, and become a Costa Rican missionary for no apparent reason other than the fact that someone you accidentally ran into, and if, I don't know if you guys know the story behind Don and Jill, he runs into someone in town 
who was a missionary there for 25 years, had just retired and they had a home they wanted to give away. I'm not joking. A home they wanted to give away. Where? In Costa Rica. When God calls you to do something ridiculous, when God, the magnitude of ridiculous is all relative, okay? Ridiculous to me might be doing something that I don't want to do. Ridiculous to you might be something completely different. Yesterday, people were coming up and speaking, and they always talk about how difficult public speaking is. But when you have the opportunity to do something, when you have the opportunity to speak something, speak encouragement to other people, and God calls you to do it, it's nothing ridiculous about that. He knows you stutter, Moses. He knows what your fears and your phobias are. He's not asking you to rely on your strength to do this. He's saying, hey, look, wait diligently, pray urgently, and ask big. And I'm not talking about ask for finances. I'm not talking about some of this goofiness that's happening in the world today. We're not here to have our best life ever. I'm sorry. I do not believe that. I do not believe that's biblical. I believe that a commitment to Christ means a very difficult life. I believe that a commitment to Christ means he's going to ask you to do things. And the reason why you're not going to have what you don't need is because James told us you have not because you ask not. And what I'm talking about here is when you ask for the things of God, when you ask God to supply the things that you need to to mandate the call, right? Not the things that you need for you. I was talking with this uh, yesterday again as someone, uh, you know, often we stand before God, Lord, this is what I would like to do. Lord, this is where I would like to go. And Lord, would you bless it? And all of a sudden he's like, no. Well then, okay, Lord, well, this is my second option of what I would like to do. And Lord, this is the second place that would you like to bless it? And he's like, no. Well, Lord, this is not working out here. You know, I'm asking you and you're not giving me what I need. What's the problem? And he says, would you like to know where I want you to go? Right? It's like a complete dichotomy of how we see things. It's like, God, would you help me do this? And God, would you give me this? And God, I need this. And get me out of this speeding ticket. And God, some kind of genie that puffs out and helps us through our hard times. Right? There's no atheist in a foxhole. Right? Anytime I see, like, uh, there's a lot of video from the police department we have to watch. it. Anytime someone's in a near-death, dire experience, you know what the first name they evoke is? God. Because they know. Believe it or not, they know that they're out of options. One guy was driving through a, a fire and, and he had his dad with him and the car's just being like covered in flames and they were stuck in some kind of national forest. They had gone there for the day or whatever and they knew the only way out was this one road. And you should have heard this man pray earnestly. Now they interviewed him af- afterwards. I don't think there's anything religious about this individual. But in that moment, when the fires are all around him, man... Nehemiah is saying, don't wait for that. Pray now that God is already with you. Pray now that God's already given you that commission. And when you pray urgently, ask and you shall receive. Why? Because when my face was sad in front of him in verse 2, it was all on the line. There's no, that's a swip, flip that switch and it's game on. He now knows 12 years has now come down to this. Why is your face sad? You're not sick. And what does it say happens in verse 2? I, then I was much afraid. What are you afraid of? You're risking your life three times a day to eat. And you've already been shown by God mercy, protection, and privilege. And now you're worried? You've had four months to prep. Because Nehemiah is still a human. Nehemiah is still a human, and you're still a human. And when you get afraid, he's thinking to himself, what do I say? What do I say? He's like, stop thinking. What do I need to fall back on? I need to pray. I need to believe that God has already given me a plan, and that what God has asked me to do 
is what I need to do. And what does he say? May the king live forever. I don't know about you, but I bet he said that a million times in his career. I bet that was the everyday phrase that when you woke up for breakfast and the king was coming out. I mean, you're working in this court. You're working in his presence. Hey, may the king live forever. This, it's like a nervous reaction to him. Oh my gosh, what have I done? I put this in motion. I was sad in front of him. King, may you live forever. But then he goes right back into it. But why should my face be happy? I've been thinking about this king for four months. Why should my face... When I think about we're in captivity, we've been here 70 years... And everyone has forgot about where we came from. But the problem is there's a prophecy about where we came from that's unfulfilled. I'm thinking I want to go back and get my father's tombs protected. But there's a prophecy about Jerusalem that's unfulfilled. The prophecy says that God will make his name known through Jerusalem to all of the world. That can't happen. That prophecy is unfulfilled if Jerusalem continues to lie in ruins. How can I be happy where I'm at with everything that I have? when that situation is true. And I started thinking about that. You know, when I moved here five years ago, the first few years you're somewhere, you still think a lot about where you came from. Now, I came from La Quinta, and La Quinta has lots of golf courses, and summers are brutal, but winters are amazing. And winter here has been a little colder, and you know, you think, it's weird. 50, five years, you still think about something. 10 years, you might still think. 70 years, I guarantee you, I won't think anything about La Quinta other than people live out there, and it's too bad, right? He's saying it's the same thing. We've lived, in, we've lived in Babylon so long that everyone's like, ah, don't worry about it. Don't worry. We, this is our home. This is what we're doing. I mean, it makes perfect sense, right? He's like, but is this really our home, Babylon? We're not Babylonians. And then I started thinking about this, church. Are we really of this world? Like, remember the old NOTW thing that was so popular for so long? I was like, we're not of this world. This is not as good as it's going to get for us. This world will be restored but we're not of this world right now. And so the lie that people are telling you that this is the best life you can have, get all you can now, and if you love God, you're going to become rich and all your problems, that's a lie. This world is broken. It's absolutely destroyed right now. If you, if you honestly want to watch TV and the news right now, you're going to hear heartache and horror, and you're going to ask yourself, why on God's green earth do I even watch the news anymore? And to be honest with you, since my grandson changed me over to the Golf Channel, I don't. I'm enjoying my new $204 a month package as my wife continues to panic every week, calling Spectrum saying, please stop it, please stop it. And my daughter Dallas begs me, Dad, can't we watch anything else other than golf? Nope. You know what happens when they play golf? Golf. You know what the commercials are out between golf? Golf. And all of a sudden, Pastor Jeff feels much less stressed at home. Because when I watch TV and I think about oh, mass shooting here, and, you know, car chase there, and this thing there, and this amazing sheriff gets shot, you know, on a three-strike three guy who a judge had a chance to put him down, and everyone's in order, ah! And then I just feel my blood pressure rising again, and I'm like, what am I doing to myself? Like, I literally, I can work myself into a frenzy just watching that. And I feel my, no, Jeff, why? This, King, live forever. Bring it back to us. We have something that we need to be doing, God. I have something that I need to be doing. I've been called to do something. What is it you want me to do? How can I focus on it? Because building two and a half miles of wall is not just going to happen. But you've given me 12 years of faithful service. And so I'm going to pray with an urgency every day that, you know what, God? Use this brokenness to show your mighty. That's what we learned yesterday with Gene Stewart. The brokenness of going on vacation 
When Michelle said for the first time in their lives, prior to the vacation to Monterey, remember they're in Idaho, it's freezing, it's cold, they don't, they're just not enjoying it, they want to come back here, this is where they're from, they called a friend, a husband and wife. And matter of fact, after she called the first friend, she said, and then I called the second friend. And I just thought, I'll throw it out there and see what happens. And both friends go. She tells us all yesterday, I've never gone on vacation with my friends ever before. And day one down there, they had a chance, the guys did, to go play golf. They went down to like Pebble Beach or one of the amazing golf courses down there. And the guys had this amazing day. Matter of fact, so amazing that Gene actually saw Condoleezza Rice was in the group in front of him. And they're having this incredible day, like the kind of day that's the best last day that you could ever have, right? And how God is just prepping this whole day. And a lot of the pictures of Gene that were showed yesterday were from that last day, that event. And then the situation, I don't feel well, I have stomach ache. And then it takes this incredibly horrific path. And she kept telling everyone who was there, and I would have been all alone in that if, and then she started to list out the things that happened. God has been doing this stuff. God has been providing this stuff. And you know what? Now she's not alone. And now Nehemiah says, you know what? If it pleases the king and you find favor in me, would you, would you do this one thing? Would you allow me to go home and rebuild? And I'm sure the king was like, rebuild? You don't build anything here. You've never built. I've never seen you build anything. Are you sure you want to build? Yes, king, I'm going to go home and build. It's the only thing that I'm asked for. And then the king responds with his queen, well, then how long will you be gone? Why, why would he ask how long would you be gone? He wanted him back, right? He has a 12-year run of breakfast, lunch, and dinner of things going well. If you're a king, that's, that's a good resource to have. You're going to leave and take whatever goodness, or if it's a God, whatever you're calling it, whatever you have is good. I don't want you just to go forever. How long are you going to be gone? And he sets a time frame. And you guys all know, if you don't know the whole story of Nehemiah, he built it in 52 days. But does he come home in 52 days? No, you're going to find out at the end of Nehemiah. Once he rebuilds the walls and restores Jerusalem, he asks for an extended stay. Not for a day or a week or even a year. He was there 12 years. I mean, this is so amazing. I mean, Don and Jill, you guys, if you know the church, Don and Jill go to Costa Rica. Don and Jill take people to Costa Rica. And God says, hey, I'm going to work it all out for you to go to Costa Rica. That makes no sense, Lord. And then all of a sudden, he not only works it all out, but he puts it right in front of them. And now every day, instead of seeing Don and Jill over there to the right, we don't see Don and Jill anymore. Why? Because they're in Costa Rica. You can only see Don and Jill now when you go to Costa Rica or when they come once a year. But God put that amazing call in his life. And Don, I, trust me, I was in the office with Don when he was praying about it. And he was asking God urgently, is this something you want me to do? And asking God, if he wants, then you're going to have to provide these resources. Why? Because if you have something big in store for me, I'm going to need a lot of resources. By the way, for those of you who support missionaries and think about taking care of people in foreign lands, God bless you for doing that. Because every day they wake up, part of what their commission is is to believe that God is going to send the resources they need. It's not going to come from the people that they're serving. That's not in my notes, but it just reminds me to say thank you to all our missionaries who do what they do. I will give you a definite time, King. I will give you everything that you're asking for, but it's because I know that what God's asking for me is bigger than what I can tell you. I'm going to go do it as fast as I can and to the best of my ability. But what it actually ultimately means, he trusts God. And I go down to verse 7, and Nehemiah says, If it pleases the king... Can letters be given to me to the governors of the province of the rivers that they will allow me to pass through to Judah and then eight letters to Asaph? So not only did he think about what he needed to do, but he thought about what the sticking points were about how he was going to get it done. 
And obviously the first one was, how am I going to get 700 miles away to Judah being a sommelier? Yeah, it's great that you're sending some horsemen and some, you know, guys with me. But still, why would they let me go back there to Judah? So that's going to be a problem. That's a lot of travel. That's a lot of road. So that is definitely something I need to overcome. So he, he prays about it, and he says, that's something I need to ask the king. And then he says, when I do finally get there, I've never been there. I've been in captivity my whole life. I've only heard about the walls of Jerusalem. But two and a half miles, 40 foot tall, eight foot thick, how am I going to rebuild that? How am I going to redo that? I am not going to do that unless I have a tremendous amount of resources. So I'm just going to have to ask the king, can you let Asaph know that I'm going to need some resources and that Asaph's going to have to provide me with the lumber? Um, it's pretty cool to think that they had like economies of different things like that. And you could talk to someone and the guy responsible for all the wood, the, the one big sawmill in town is just like, hey, give him everything that he needs. Everything that you need. Church, that's what I think is where we should think about. Not what I need right? When you're praying about stuff like that, stop praying about what you need. Pray about what God needs to give you to get the call done. And if you're saying, well, what's the call? No matter what the call is, it's always going to be to serve other people, right? The call in your life is always going to be to serve other people because the Great Commission says, go, make, baptize, and teach, right? So there, there's your quantifier. It's like, well, I don't know if it's from God or not. Okay, is it telling you to go? Maybe it's telling you to go within the city and do something. Is it telling you to make? Make new connections, make new relationships, develop your oikos, develop your sphere of influence, whatever words help you understand. Develop an understanding of who God's placing in your life and then take them to the foot of the cross. Right? Baptize them. They make a profession of faith. Help them realize, like, just like a wedding ring is to a ceremony, the opportunity to be baptized and publicly confess the Lord is an opportunity to begin to initiate your call to having a testimony i've talked with people before about baptism i have this incredible little class that i've taught for about 12 years and it's so interesting to me that in baptism class i've actually seen people make a profession of faith like they've walked all the way to the point that they're about ready to get baptized but when it talks about practicing your testimony before you actually give your testimony people are like i've never given my testimony before if you don't know your testimony if that probably means you're not sharing your testimony right Nehemiah is going to share his testimony to everyone because he's going to tell those people, hey, look, I got the king's letters, I got the king's lumber, and I got the king's support, and even though I've never built a single thing in my life, God has told me to go and build. Maybe God's calling you to go do something you've never done in your life before, and you're like, just that alone makes no sense. Okay, to you, it makes no sense. But it makes sense to him, so be careful. And what happens Nehemiah finally gets motivated. He finally does everything he needs to do. He's put the due diligence in. He's prayed. He's been diligent. He's been earnest. He gets there. And the first thing that happens is there's confetti cannons going off. And there's a huge celebration. And the remnant that's there is celebrating his return. And they're like, hey, it's great to see you. He sells all his belongings. He goes to Costa Rica. And there's protesters standing in front of his house saying, go home. I don't know about you, but calls to ministry are interesting. I mean, people say, well, you know, it has to be a pastor or whatever. It's not. Every one of you has a call. Every one of you has something that God is asking you to do, and God is trying to empower you and give you what you need to accomplish that, because it builds the kingdom of God. And for each one of you to do what God has called you to do, the nitpicking naysayers are waiting for you to try to answer that call. Right? 
what is, what is a horn? Once again, go back to Dylan in the Hebrew calendar. I'm sure you're a hornite and an, uh, let's see this, a hornite and an amrite. You're, you're using those, right, we were good, yeah, okay. They're displaced Israelites. So they've been displaced, pushed out of Israel. So far as they're concerned, a destroyed rubble barren Jerusalem is fabulous. But if the name of the Lord is going to be made known throughout the whole world, then it has to be restored, right? And it's kind of interesting, as I mentioned to you last week, even if it is restored, this is like 455 BC that this is happening. Even when they finally do restore it and it's magnificent in AD 70, what happens to it again? Rome comes and wipes it down to the thread-bearing foundation. That's why if you ever go visit it today, all that's left is the foundation. Solomon, the wall where people sit and pray, they call it the wailing wall. All that's left of it is the foundation. So it makes sense when Revelation 21 says the Lord's going to bring it with him. It may never be built. This was never just about building walls. This was never about trying to restore something. This was about fulfilling prophecy. The prophecy said, God said, not Jesus. Jesus is not involved, right? We're Old Testament here. God said, my name will be made great through Jerusalem. And Jerusalem has to stand and Jerusalem has to exist for that to be true. So whatever it takes, there's, by the way, there's two nitpicking naysayers for when he arrives to say, no, it's probably best that this is left alone. Pretty soon there's going to be three. And as we read the rest of it and the rest of the study starts, starting around chapter four through about chapter eight, Every single chapter, every single entry into the journal is a whole new level of complaint, a whole new level of problem, a whole new level of conundrum that he's going to have to deal with. Church, if God has called you to do something, if God has commissioned you to do something, and you've been praying about it diligently, if you've been doing it with urgency and fasting and mourning and doing whatever God would have you to do so that you can ask big and say, God, if you want me to do this, then provide for it, then you should equally be prepared for the nitpicking naysayers. And I just want to tell you one last thing about the nitpicking naysayers. They don't all come from the outside. Unfortunately, Darlene, some do come from the inside. And let me tell you about the ones that come from the inside. They don't even know sometimes that they're just tapping that wall. Right? Just tapping the wall to test you and see, this is my opinion on something. And this is what I think. And it doesn't seem like a lot, right? But neither does a water drop dropping on your head one time seem like a lot. But if someone dropped a water drop on your head continuously for an hour, you know what we call that? Torture. Crazy, no. Crazy is what you become if you have something continuously tapping you like that, right? Remember when your kids were asking, Mom, Mom, Dad, how much longer? Dad, then later on in life, someone just taps you and you're instantly like, right? Nehemiah has gone from a position of where everything is cut and dry, everything is black and white, everything that he expected every day was very routine to where everything is unknown. Every day that he wakes up, it's unknown. Matter of fact, for those of you that get to do the home study on the second half, when he walks around the walls for the first time and really takes it in, it's overwhelming. Two and a half miles. And if you walk every day, you know, that's, that's, that's like 10,000 steps or something, or 8,000 steps. That's a, it's a good journey. 40 feet tall, 8 feet thick. 
and 12 gates. And your skill set is sommelier, right? <laughs> or you eat steak, or you eat whatever, the king's amazing food. But what you didn't realize is what that process was. Think about this. If your life was on the line three times a day, something would happen. If you were sick, and you realized that you were sick, and every day you woke up and every day you had a chance to live, your sickness taught you something, more urgency about your relationship with God, more dependence on him. I have nitpicking naysayers in my life. I have people that don't, don't like me. I have people that have been problematic for years in my life, and I have people that are so encouraging and such a blessing that you have to choose who you're going to listen to. And I just want to share one final thing with you before I ask the band to come back up and God to continue to bless is when you do hear the nitpicking naysayers, your job is not to refute them with a hostility that puts them in their place. They might be worthy of that, and in your mind you think, you know what, Lord, heap hot coals on them however you can do that. But your job is to respond to them saying, I understand that some are for me, I understand that some are against me, but I am not working ultimately for you. Right? Even if I, a pastor of this church and laboring for a church, ultimately I'm not answering to the elders, even though the elders are my immediate source of direct contact and who I answer. Who am I ultimately answering to? Who are you ultimately answering to? So if God wants to speak truth into your life, if God wants it, then that's who you need to focus on. And what is God telling you for facing adversity like his son faced daily, right? Was Jesus constantly praised? Was it the best life ever for Jesus? Think about what people are selling you when they sell you that best life ever. What about Jesus' life was the best life ever? The fact that he spent, you know, 33 years on the planet, three years in solid ministry with 12 guys. I mean, solid ministry. John said if I recorded everything that we did, it would be a voluminous book, and yet he still has to come back and do a 40-day crash course to reinstill those values. Nothing about that is the best life ever. It's difficult. It was a struggle. It was a lot of hard work. But what did he do in the garden? He prayed earnestly. Jesus prayed so earnestly, it says that, you know, blood broke through in his, the strain of his load. Do not let the voices of the nitpicking naysayers be the one that rings out in your ear. And I'm telling you that because I have to myself realize that. Ten people say, thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for your ministry. Yesterday, Michelle Tyson in our women's ministry, Diane, and it just was an incredible outpouring of work that was done. But if one person says, oh, well, you guys could have done this for the tables. Or wouldn't it have been nice if you did this instead of that, right? Ten people say amazing and thank you and whatever, but one person, and that one person's never going to go away, says, but what if you did this instead of that? And then we all go home and we're like sitting down and we're like, jeez. And your wife says to you, what's wrong? It was such a great event. I'm like, I guess I talked about myself too much or I played the video for two minutes instead of four minutes. You, just, you listen to that one voice, and you just let that one voice destroy everything about what God commissioned you to do, right? You have a lot of head nodding right here, right? It happens. But you don't work for me, nor do I work for you. We all cumulatively work. We are on one equal line, sinners before the throne of God who work for one thing and one person alone. So that one day he might say to you, Robin, well done, my good and faithful servant step forward into what awaits you, right? To hear the words, well done. That's what we're working for. That's the high calling on our life. And that is the voice that needs to supersede all the other ones that said, well, instead of playing it in that key, couldn't you have played it in this key? 
Brad, could you tune the drums down a little bit? Hey, instead of the solo, maybe just, you know, just play a nice riff. You know what? They don't mean it, but man, it really just gets right under your skin. And I tell you this, Nehemiah is going to get the work done. Nehemiah's people and his problems and complaints are not going to go away, and your problems and complaints are not going to go away. But if you stay focused on the call and who you're actually living and working for, you will have a life that's well-lived. And that's something I can encourage you in the name of God to tell you. That is an aspiration that all of us have. Have a life that's well-lived so that when you do pass and people get a chance to say something about you, what they say is the Jesus or the God that they saw in you that other people were blessed and encouraged by. Because Gene wasn't everyone's cup of tea. Those of us who know Gene, not everyone's cup of tea. But I am so glad that God has made black tea as strong as it is because there's times in my life where only black tea is going to help. Amen? I don't need chamomile and cinnamon, hibiscus, geranium, floranium. I don't need that. I need to wake up. I am tired of being soggy and groggy, and I need a good, strong cup of black tea, and I need a brother or sister who will come to me and say, hey, I love you. If you could have done that, great, but if not, thank you for giving your best. Thank you for everything that you do and for everything that you say. We're blessing the kingdom of God. Keep doing the work. You have work to do, and I'm not where you're at. So the work that you're doing, the people that you're praying for, the life that you're living, the child that you're raising, the struggle that you're fighting with, the stuff that brings you down is not going to be what you're known for. You're going to be known for the victory that Jesus Christ is going to give you. And that's the real excitement of the New Testament. So I'm going to ask the band to come up, and I'm going to finish in prayer. Father God, today has been an opportunity once again to to see your hand in Nehemiah, a message that I have privileged to be teaching for the third time in my life, and yet this is the first time ever teaching that I've ever seen so clearly this idea of call, conflict, and conclusion. And the reality is that a lot of us are being called to do a work for the kingdom of God, and in light of the conflict that comes with it, We've added a new word, complacency, and we're just, we're just saying, well, we're waiting on the Lord. It's like a ship that's been built to go to sea, and it's fully loaded, and yet it just remains at dock, tied with ropes to a pier that will never allow it to sail and be tested against the seas of life. And I just pray this morning, Father, that for, for my brothers that can't breathe, my sisters that are suffering from mourning and grief, Father, I look out in this congregation, and I know this, I know this body well, and I know you know it even better, and I, and I can't help but think that each one of us has brought some kind of burden and some kind of load and something that's stopping us from being able to live a life that's worth living. Not our best life. Is this, in this life, you will have trouble. You will have adversity. But take heed, I have overcome this world. Nehemiah was able to overcome this world and do the task that you gave him. And that's something I pray this morning, that if there's someone in this building that doesn't know that your name is going to be made great, not only in Jerusalem, but in every person that calls himself a follower of God. This morning, Father, I pray that you would speak to that individual. Restore that dry well inside of that person. Bring hope back to the hopeless. And Father, just send your angelic angels to comfort those that are mourning this morning for whatever their reason, health, loss, whatever they've gone through. May we realize that it's not an easy fight, but it is a fight that is worth persevering in. 
may we continue to run the race in such a way as we might hear one day as Nehemiah did, well done, my good and faithful servant.
about how great our God is right now to close the morning out. The Rejoice, all the earth rejoice. He wraps himself in light, and darkness tries to hide, and trembles at his voice, and trembles at his voice. How great is our God! Sing with me. Feel something on your heart that feels undone, feel free to come on up and let me know. 
If not, you can go online, send it to pastors at Lighthouse Community. God bless you guys. Stay in the fight. It's going to be nitpicking naysayers. It's okay. We'll see you next week. God bless. (laughs) 